Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week on Investment Uncut, we're delighted to be joined by Karen Ward. Karen is the Chief Market Strategist EMEA at JP Morgan Asset Management. And Karen, I think you're also a member of the Shadow MPC. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So that's for the Times. They bring together a group of former policymakers, academics, industry practitioners, and basically ahead of the rate meeting, ask us what we do before the Bank of England, the real MPC meet. Fantastic. So Karen, I guess you've just given us a flavour of your role as Shadow MPC. Could you just give us a little taste of your role at JP Morgan as well, please? So I'm Chief Strategist for European clients. I'm a global strategist focused on looking after our European clients. And my function is to provide independent research from what any of the investment desks are doing. So I don't sit alongside a fund. I have lots of interaction with our portfolio managers. I have an ability to challenge them and talk to them about their views. But my job really is to help our clients think about what's happening in the world and try and make good investment decisions. Right. Cool. And of course, it's pretty interesting times at the moment for people trying to do that. And we'll get into that in a second, hopefully. But we love to ask our guests, Karen, what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I'm amazing at Lego, if I do say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) I've got two little boys who are six and eight. And over the course of the last eight years, I've found a real passion for Lego. (laughs) I haven't had much choice, I would say, in that. (laughs) But actually, I find it really quite relaxing. I don't like it when they try to get involved in my creations, Mm. though. That's when I have a problem, when I've created something that I'm delightfully happy with and it's symmetrical and looks great. And then they come and start adding in all sorts of things. But yeah, Lego is my secret hobby. That is interesting. I can see some of that in my future, to be honest. I've got a one-year-old a little boy. And funnily enough, I went home to see my parents a few weeks ago. And my parents had dug out some of my old Lego from when I was a kid and had started putting it back together and stuff. So it ages pretty well, actually, Lego, doesn't it? It, it's it kind of- does. It does. It's Oh, well, you're really lucky then. I've been accumulating on eBay and boxes and boxes of Lego. And now I'm drowning in it. But you've got... A head start, thanks to your parents and their loft, I suspect. What's the favorite, <laughs> just quickly then, what's the favourite thing you've created? Oh, I just made a Christmas tree this weekend, which I know it's November and that's far too early. But yeah, I was quite <laughs> delighted with it. Although we've been talking on recent episodes about, we feel like everyone's just really embracing the Christmas love this year. It feels oh, like everyone's we gone need soon. Something, and right? I, think it's, I think that's allowed this year, of all years. <laughs> Cool. All right, then. Well, Karen, turning to the sort of subject at hand, I guess it's a cliche, isn't it, that we live in interesting times sort of thing, that there's an awful lot going on in some of the economy and macro, so many different things. How would you sort of help investors just think about where we are, the moment we're at, these different themes and what it all means? You're right. I think sort of trying to work out what we should be focused on is one of the big big challenges when there's so much news flow hitting us. So the way I'm thinking about things is to think through the three lenses. So the first is demand. What are the underlying drives of demand? How much momentum is there? The second is supply, because actually that's the problem we've got. It's not that we've got a shortage of demand. We can't fulfill orders because of all of the 
myriad of supply chain problems. So how will these supply issues resolve themselves? And of course, once you've done demand and supply, then you can sort of work through what that means for inflation. Very hot topical issue at the moment. And then the third lens is once I've got all that, I've got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen to corporate earnings. And then it's thinking about what policymakers do, and particularly the central banks, because we know that after the financial crisis, their influence in global markets has been growing. It's accelerated even further through the measures that they put in place through the pandemic. So that's the way I'm sort of looking at things, demand, supply, what do policymakers do with it? And maybe just to give you some highlights of what conclusions I come to, I'm really optimistic about demand. I think consumers and their balance sheets just look fabulous, thanks to all of the fiscal stimulus that's been put in place, but they're sat on these enormous pent-up savings. The house prices are up 10% at least around the developed world. Their asset prices and pensions look fabulous, thanks to the central banks. So they're, I think, when they are able to (laughs) get out and spend, and their spending will start to shift from goods to services. So Mm. I'm really optimistic about demand. I'm a little bit more hesitant about these supply bottlenecks resolving themselves quickly. So I know, I'm sure, we'll end up talking a lot more about inflation but I think I am not convinced, or certainly not as convinced as the central banks seem to be, that this is all going to be transitory and resolve itself. But nevertheless, I think policymakers, they are taking the most cautious approach. They want to make sure this recovery really gets going. So they will err on the side of doing too little, for sure. So I think that gives me or the combination of which gives me actually a pretty good backdrop for risk. It's a very benign, I think, as we head into 2022, backdrop for corporate earnings. Could you maybe just expand a little bit? I mean, you use the word transitory, and that's obviously a word that's been used quite a lot in economic news, at least in the last couple of months. From an outsider into the untrained eye, there are lots and lots of what feel like quite short-term issues driving inflation dynamics at the moment. What's your view in terms of why that will actually last longer than perhaps other people are expecting? There are some of the issues that will be transitory. I mean, let's take one, for example, which is because of the semiconductor shortages, we couldn't get new car production going. And so there's been this Mm. huge surge in demand for used cars. And that's actually been quite a big contributor to inflation. Now, that's not going to go on and on forever. That will. It might take a bit of time and that will resolve itself. The non-transitory aspect for me comes from the labour market. That's the medium term driver of inflation. We haven't been here for a very, very long time because workers just haven't had bargaining power. But I think we're going to be really surprised, and I think we already are surprised, by how much bargaining power workers seem to have. These labour markets are extremely tight. I mean, the central banks are even sort of dismissing that as transitory. They're saying well, we're going to have this flood of workers coming back into the jobs market because unemployment benefits are fading, the furlough scheme in the UK is fading, and also just some of the COVID restrictions, homeschooling, all of this. They're just going to encourage all these workers back. And I'm just not convinced that's enough. I don't think the number is going to be significant enough to meet the vacancies, which across the developed world are at multi-decade highs. So the labour market to me is tight continues to get tighter. And therefore, I think that wage pressure grows. So as used car prices are coming off, it's service sector inflation that's really starting to pick up. Now, just to be clear, I do think headline inflation is going to 
come down. I don't think it's going to keep going in the US from six up to seven to eight, etc. But I think we're not going back down to two anytime soon. That's my thoughts there. It's interesting looking at markets, isn't it? Because I would say markets, and I'm talking about gilt markets and treasury markets for that matter, they're not pricing it to be transitory really at all, are they? It's one thing that's really struck me is the break-even inflations are quite high, quite far out. An apparent gap between what central banks are saying and what markets think is going to happen. You're right. I mean, the break-evens, I think you can make a lot of sense of. I think it's much harder to make sense of nominal curves (laughs) with what's going on in the macro. That's a sort of fascinating topic. I think increasingly the market, as you say, is really starting to question this transitory narrative, partly because of that labour market story. Participation Mm. is just not picking up in the way that think many thought it would be doing already. Just one point quickly there, maybe to be a little bit provocative. I mean, I always like to think about which of the sort of economic models that are sort of dear to us are kind of broken and we need to leave behind. And you sort of alluded to it, that the connection between the labour market and inflation is sort of a traditional model, which has been, let's say, quite heavily questioned for the last couple of decades. And from what I understood it, the logic was always central banks need to react to inflation because the worry is it will get baked into wage rises and that's what you want to avoid because then you're in an inflation kind of spiral. And it's been challenged a bit, almost philosophically, I suppose, by saying wages going up is almost treated as a bad thing in that way of looking at the world. It's like, but hang on, that's people getting paid more. And often the least well-paid people in service sector jobs getting paid more. So is it so bad to want those people to get paid more and to allow those kind of wages to go up and live with a little bit of inflation, I guess? I mean, it's almost a philosophical political point, isn't it? But it's quite connected to policy. Well, you've raised lots of interesting things there. I mean, first of all, I think on the sort of economic models or how things are changing, we haven't had to pay attention to the supply side for a really long time. We've almost had elastic supply. We've had the combination of sort of just-in-time global supply chains and the entry of China has just been this massive positive supply shock. So all we've had to worry about for years is demand. Is there enough demand? Because supply has been so overwhelming. And that's what I think is turning around. And as I say, I think sustainably, There's two other points I'd make down on what you just said. One is about wage growth. I think that's right. I think if a higher level of wage growth, of real wage growth, though that's important, it does need to be not just compensating for you for how much your cost of living is going up. The lack of that gave us a whole host of political problems. So I think moving to a more sustainable level of wage growth where we don't have these issues of people being left behind and inequality should produce us a healthier economy and a more stable political system. But I think the other thing, just to conclude on what you said, is I think there is a healthy, good level of inflation. I think you're right that the assumption is all inflation must be bad. And that's not right. Now, I always say inflation is sort of like wine or chocolate, that you want just the right amount, (laughs) but you've got to be careful with too much. And just the right amount is probably three. It's Mm -hmm. definitely not one, as we've discovered from the last cycle. And I do think that most of the inflation that I am forecasting, this sort of sustained, is in that good category. It's representative of a healthy economy, which is more dynamic, which doesn't have deficient demand. So I don't think we should be scared about that kind of number. It's just if it's clearly persisting at six because of supply, that's the inflation we don't want. You mentioned policy earlier, and I think maybe we'll return to that if that's okay. So as mentioned at the start, you're on the shadow committee. 
and you've argued for interest rate rises, which clearly haven't come through in those meetings themselves. Could you maybe just talk a little bit around, I guess, your arguments for and reasons why it hasn't happened in your view? I think partly it's a difference in judgment about the fundamentals. As I say, I'm just much less convinced this is transitory. I also think there's a strategic issue that's going on. And that's what the markets, I think, are really struggling to understand is how the central bank's going to play this. And to be honest, I understand. As I say, I'm on the shadow MPC, so I'm not actually setting interest rates. Who cares what I think? I'm not <laughs> affecting people's mortgages. They are. Mm. I can kind of understand that this approach, I started my career at the Bank of England working under Mervyn King, and he used to say monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So you need to have a forward-looking approach. A stitch in time saves nine was the sort of ultimate mantra And I think what we've seen is that completely change. They would much rather in years to come be criticised for being too late than be Mm. criticised for being too early. We're coming out of a global pandemic which has rocked us all to the core and not just our economies. I can see why they are strategically taking risks with being too late rather than too early. I think the market, though, should think about how that strategy should affect how we're thinking about what ultimately they do. Because, of course, if they are erring on the side of being too late, then to me that suggests that they will probably end up having to do more. And that's not what the market is pricing at the moment. It still has very low terminal rates. You mentioned mortgages and I guess I just have this feeling that is there a cap or there's downward pressure on, not further downward pressure on rates, but that it feels like there must be a sensitivity around interest rates because of previous housing crises and the amount of money that's sort of held via mortgages at this point in time. What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. And I think we always, when we're in a rate tightening cycle, that's the question in each new tightening cycle, we're always asking ourselves, has the economy changed? Has it become more interest rate sensitive? Mm. I actually think on the household side, though, the households have become much less rate sensitive. They've done a fabulous job of locking themselves in to low rates. So we have, I think it's 50% of all mortgages now, are 70% are fixed. And I think 50% of those are five-year fixes. So they've really taken advantage. The banks have been lending throughout the pandemic. They've actually been competing amongst each other to lend. And so households have really been able to gain access to this low interest rate environment. The same, of course, the US naturally fixes at a long rate. So they've had this record low 30-year mortgage rate. So it's not households that are more interest rate sensitive, but what is a lot more interest rate sensitive is government cash flows, which makes life, of course, therefore very Mm. sensitive politically, perhaps, because the combination of much higher levels of debt, but also this is particularly an issue here in the UK, how they have, through the asset purchase scheme, how it's almost changed the effective maturity of debt. And the Office for Budget Responsibility do fabulous work on this if anyone wants to go and sort of get into the details because I think it's really important. But the interest rate sensitivity of government cash flows has increased markedly. So they're not going to be taking money out of households as they raise rates. They're going to be taking money off the Chancellor. So that's tricky. But I don't think that it's going to then lead to a whole wave of austerity. I think it just means that governments will accept that they're living with these high levels of debt. 
you talk there about the start of the hiking cycle, and I guess that is exactly why we're at such an interesting moment. And it feels like the Bank of England actually is somehow at the leading edge of that tightening cycle as well. And like you said, if central banks are going to be behaving slightly differently, then the trick for markets is trying to almost not just interpret the next hike, but markets are trying to interpret the whole shape of that whole tightening cycle, aren't they? Which is partly why we have actually seen bond markets be quite volatile this year. We've had a couple of sort of run-ups and back down in sort of 10-year yields. Is that what you're seeing happening? Yeah, absolutely. We've got the most phenomenal uncertainties. Back to my framework of huge uncertainties about demand. I'm assuming everyone spends all these pent-up savings because we're all so bored and desperate to get out, <laughs> go on holiday, etc. But who knows? I might be different. They might actually remain cautious. Tremendous uncertainties about supply. As I say, I've made a number of assumptions about how supply issues in goods resolve themselves. But the labour market, I mean, it's super complex. And then overlaying all that macro uncertainty, we've got this reaction function uncertainty, We're just not entirely sure how the central banks are going to react differently. So I think volatility in bond markets, which of course then will transmit into broader volatility across yeah. risk markets because of how everything is underpinned, I think that's something we should absolutely be braced for in 2022. I don't think it's going to be a down year. I think it's still going to be a good year for corporate earnings and that will ultimately overwhelm. But I certainly think it's going to be bumpier. I guess to help pick through some of that, what are the key sort of data points that you're looking out for at the moment? Labour market, labour market, labour market. So not just the job creation and vacancies and the sense of demand, but really trying to understand whether these workers are coming back. And it's tricky because we often don't have, we've got good data for the US, which is mm. relatively timely. But for the Eurozone, we don't have great real-time data. We're sort of relying on new data like business surveys. What are timely monthly business surveys telling us about input costs and how much of that is wage growth? So I think really trying to get a sense of this wage pressure and whether that proves transitory and I think the labour market is what the central banks will increasingly try and point us to. And mm. also, of course, to defer our attention from headline inflation. They'll really focus on, we've got to look at the underlying trend. It's interesting you mentioned the real-time stuff. I think The Economist did a cover, didn't they, a couple of weeks ago about the real-time economics revolution, they called it. And they were sort of saying there's so much more. I'm always a bit sceptical of people talking about open table reservations or Uber bookings and stuff because mm. you just don't really have the history, do you? I mean, how would you reflect on some of that real-time stuff? Do you think it's really able to help policymakers or is it just a risk of creating noise? I think it's been helpful for thinking like activity trackers through the mm. pandemic, being yeah. able to work out people, how they were going out and how that was relative to the past. That sort of daily data was quite helpful. I think the problem is, Dan, is that there's so many different shifts in spending happening. So what you could mm. might capture is mm. a sort of very temporary phenomenon yeah. or just a niche aspect. Everyone is out of lockdown and open table is rammed, but it might not really tell you anything about a sort of true underlying growth or momentum. Even the way that we go out these days is still different, isn't it, than pre-pandemic. So open table, for example, did we all book tables to go for dinner pre-pandemic or to go to the pub? Did we book tables for that? And I don't know about you guys, but going to a pub after work, if I've gone to the office, it feels like people are still booking tables. So you can stand at the bar, but you can't really have a space unless you've booked it. That is not what it felt like before. So, no, yeah. absolutely. We've talked a fair bit, I suppose, about near-term issues. And of course, there is a much longer-term 
trajectory. Really, really interested in your views on a much, much longer term basis. Maybe let's look at the next decade. What are the sort of big mega themes that you think will hit us over that period? Well, one of them is not terribly new, which is the sort of rise of Asia. But I think what I would say is, and why this is actually now an investable theme, whereas actually I think 10 years ago it wasn't, it was an economic theme, but it wasn't an investment theme. It's how the capital markets themselves are maturing. So we've known incomes have been rising, this rising middle classes has been a story for China for quite some time. You can access it. You could buy the state-owned enterprises in China, which just weren't seeing that growth. So it's how the capital markets have matured, how the bond markets in China have matured, the A-share market in China. We've sort of got access to those now fast growth opportunities. And also EM itself is changing. It's now less about mass production of cheap manufactured goods, which ultimately get sent to the US. It's now they're producing quality brands, global Mm. brands. And so I think the opportunities coming from Asia, I still think are very high on my list of long-term most compelling. I think aside from that, this transition to net zero, we're recording this as COP26 is wrapping up and this isn't going away. We have Mm. a phenomenal shift that needs to happen. We need to get from 80% of our energy coming from fossil fuels to 20% of our energy coming from fossil fuels. That's a phenomenal shift, not just in how we source energy, but how we use energy. And I just think the investment implications of that, and as I'm reflecting on COP26, it makes me think even more as an investor, how I can't ignore this, because my conclusion of where they've got to so far is that governments themselves are reluctant to drive the change. And what they're going to do is make sure that private capital is providing the solution. That's been the big announcement, really. But of course, that's you and I and all of our clients and how they're going to be forcing investment decisions to move in that direction. So I think we just can't sort of ignore the regulatory levers that they're going to be pulling to make that happen. So I think that's another thing. I think impact investing generally is going to be a major structural change. I do think people are more aware or interested in how their capital is being put to work and whether it aligns Mm. with broader personal objectives they have. I think that that's another key theme as well. And just on that, Karen, really quickly, how well do you think sort of economic models are incorporating stuff like that? Because one of the criticisms would be, I think that the sort of, I don't know, call it the Milton Friedman, even the sort of Adam Smith type economic models are quite rationally focused on sort of risk return, rational outcomes. And a big criticism has been that impact kind of went missing, including climate impacts. Do you feel economists are kind of stepping up and helping build that into models or is that still a gap? Slowly, I think is the answer, Dan. Also in sort of niche areas, So you're getting some forecasters starting to really build it in. But on a broad scale basis, I would argue no. And it is an error because, I mean, just look at what we've been through over the course of the last year and this massive jump that we've seen in global energy prices. We've all kind of woken up and gone, oh, well, actually, if we're not going to be allowed to invest in fossil fuels and therefore we're going to have no supply coming on stream, but at the same time, we haven't yet transitioned demand. And that probably means that global energy prices are going to be much higher. Oh, OK, now I've sort of woken <laughs> up and realised that. So clearly it wasn't in the models. I think the other aspect of it, though, unfortunately, 
of how we're going to be putting this into models, but also just into our daily investment practice, is increasingly thinking about physical climate risk. If we are not able to get ahead of the curve on this one, and it looks like a more disorderly outcome at some point looks more likely, we will be increasingly thinking about what companies, parts of the world are more vulnerable to how the climate does change. So Karen, just as we're starting to wrap up then, what is one thing you would like listeners to take away from this whole episode? I think the one thing I'm really trying to get across to clients at the moment is don't use the last cycle as Mm. your template for this one. Because Mm. the last cycle, I think there's so many things that are now different. One is this supply side of the economy that's changing. The second is the demand backdrop is just different. When last cycle, to me, this is the really key thing to get across, is central banks were operating on their own. They had the foot on the accelerator, but governments had their foot really firmly on the brake. And that's the main reason I think we just couldn't get going. Central banks can create money, but they can't put it in people's pockets. They need commercial Mm. banks and they need governments. Mm. And they have that now. So we've got, I think, a much more buoyant demand backdrop, which will shape, I think, different nominal GDP, but also just different areas of growth. And so what I say to clients is just go back to the 2000s and look. So the the kind of macro backdrop to me is a little bit more like the 2000s than it is the last decade. And just look how differently markets performed. Value outperformed growth that cycle. Europe outperformed the US. I mean, things that in our tendency to just focus on what happened recently, you say to people outperforming the US, I sort of, what, what? Um, Last cycle was so dominated by tech, mega cap, the US. And I just think we need to really revisit that for how this cycle might be different. Lots of stuff to think about there. Thank you. And Karen, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Oh, the most underappreciated thing from the perspective of clients and what we do or just what people should be paying more attention to? Let's go the latter. What should people pay more attention to? Got it. I think we have to, unfortunately, pay incredibly close attention to everything that our policymakers are telling us. We've got to be looking line by line on what they're going to do because their influence in global markets is now greater than it's ever been. And I think they are in the driving seat and therefore I constantly remind myself not to be too much of an economist, put it that way. (laughs) So if I'm trying to understand the bond market, why is their 10 years struggling to get above one and a half percent when inflation six and growth is strong, is just thinking about some of the technicalities of how the central banks are influencing these markets. And I think that's the key thing we have to keep reminding ourselves. That's a lot of exciting reading, deciphering all those central bank communications. We love oh, it. I know. And I don't the envy them. I mean, poor no. Jerome Powell, every time he sort of opens his mouth, it's going to be overanalyzed. Yeah. So they've got a tough job ahead backing themselves out of this corner yeah. they've got themselves into. Not to go too deep into it, but it's also an interesting point there that there's some new personalities involved there. Obviously, the Bank of England still relatively new heads there and of talk in the US that it's not guaranteed that Jerome Powell is going to be there for a lot longer. That in itself is a problem if you've got new people trying to communicate to markets. Particularly when we know, as I alluded to earlier, that government cash flows are much more dependent on what these individuals do. And therefore, I think Trump gave us a 
insight into political influence of a central bank in a way that we haven't had for quite some time. But I do think investors will be keeping a close eye as well on how independent the central banks really are from here. Fabulous. Thank you, Karen. And do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Kind of anything goes really. Doesn't have to be economy related, but can be absolutely. So I think I really like the stuff that the Office for Budget Responsibility puts out. I think they're a really underappreciated organisation in terms of they do a lot of work on risks. They often really make me think about, I mean, one of these big issues we've just alluded to, governments don't want the central banks to raise rates. They really need them not to. Mm -hmm. And some of their stuff, I think, really brings that out. I think also, I quite like the Planet Money podcast. I think they have something good. There's a trade podcast I quite like. Other than that, I find myself listening to podcasts that are very much about how to be calm and get all the other (laughs) things out of your life. I think it's, I really like, there's a chap called Mo Galdat who does a podcast called Slow Mo and he just... His voice is also wonderful, but it's just I think they're very good at making in these fast paced markets where there's so much going on. My outside of work ambition is always just to take a deep breath Mm -hmm. (laughs) and slow down. Those are some of the things I get up to in my spare time. And Lego, of course. Yeah, Lego, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a really nice tip. That's a lovely note to end on, perhaps, as well. So we'll include notes to those in the show notes and we'll include links to maybe a couple of pieces of your recent research as well. So listeners can explore that. But this has been really good, Karen. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Karen. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Join us again next week for another episode. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.